And I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 63. Psalm chapter 63, that is our text for study this morning. And we are going to read the text, the entire chapter, then we'll have a short prayer, and then we'll get after it. So Psalm chapter 63. Psalm 63, a song of David, Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that as we uh, study this psalm together, that you would draw us into joyful praise. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I was out jogging um, the other day, jogging, and um, I have my headphones in and I'm listening to to, to some worship songs as I'm, as I'm running. And I live in live out in the country, and so I'm running out on a country road, and I'm looking out at the farm fields and the birds and the animals and and everything, listening to the sounds. And uh, this hymn comes on. Uh, many of you are familiar with it. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And I do realize that for some of you, those words might be uh, difficult for you to sing and feel right now. But hopefully by the end of this sermon, we, we may feel a dif- little differently. But I, I heard these words begin, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And then we came to the lines that say this, all thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee. Center of unbroken praise, field and forest, vale and mountain. Flowery meadow, flashing sea, singing bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. And as I was running, uh, those words that that, that struck me, sent Jesus, is the center of unbroken praise. And I'm not going to lie to you. You can make fun of me if you want. Um, Those words hit me uh, as I was running. I miss worshiping with my my church family. And third grade school, school schoolgirl tears began to to, to run down my face. and, and, and the, the reason why the, the, those, those words hit me, the center of unbroken praise, is my hope for us right now in the midst of um, this global pandemic where our lives have been put on hold and, and things are, are difficult and when we feel like we're, we're suffering, whether in a small way or big way, that um, Jesus would still be the center of our unbroken praise and that through this time, our worship of him, our love for him, our joy of praising him wouldn't decrease, but it would actually increase. And so when then when you and I get back together as a church family, 
it would be obvious that our time spent in the wilderness wasn't for nothing because it's obvious that God had done a great work in your heart and in my heart and in your life when we get back together to joyfully sing and praise um, our God through Jesus Christ. Um, the reason I say that, in Psalm 63, Charles Spurgeon writes this of this psalm, and it'll begin to make a little more sense as we talk about context, um, the context of the psalm. Charles Spurgeon says this of Psalm 63. All the straits and difficulties of the wilderness must not put us out of tune with sacred song. But even then, it is our duty and interest to keep up cheerful communion with God. Did you catch what he said there? But even then, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of a global pandemic, even then it is our duty and interest to keep up cheerful communion with God. For those of you who've been using the McShane Bible reading plan, you're well into reading through the Psalms. And one of the beauties of the Psalms is that it shows that God's people are not robots. Um, that we actually have emotions. And as you read through uh, the Psalms, you can see where people's emotions are um, coming out, whether it be fear, anxiety, depression, um, joy, happiness. Um, but the thing you, if you pay attention reading to the Psalms is the emotions aren't sovereign, God is. The emotions that we experience are controlled by, driven by, um, shaped by, a true and real understanding, a biblical understanding of the God of the Bible. And so as we come to Psalm 63, um, it's no different. We're going to see a man who is desperate to know God, uh, who's seeking God, um, but he understands who God really is. And so Psalm 63, if you have an ESV Bible or an NIV Bible open in front of you, you'll see that the title of the psalm says this, uh, Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So Psalm 63 was written by a king who was um, not in his physical kingdom. Uh, he was not in his place of comfort. Uh, in fact, he was driven away from the, the, the center of Jerusalem and was, was out in the wilderness. And now there are two possibilities for the background of this psalm. One would be that date when David was anointed king of Israel but had not yet assumed a throne as current king and Saul was trying to kill David and was pursuing him in the wilderness. Uh, the second possibility uh, is when David's son Absalom had driven him into the wilderness and was pursuing him and, and trying to take him out. Uh, regardless of the situation, David still finds himself in the wilderness in a situation. And I can tell you I've been to Israel and I've looked over uh, the, the desolate, dry, weary land that is, is much of the landscape there. And that is not a place you want to be on the run from anybody. Yet despite his circumstances... Uh, yet despite the circumstances that David finds himself in, the composer's soul is still drawn into joyful praise. Each stanza of the, the, the psalm, the result of David's soul is joyful praise, or the thing that comes about, and that's a better way to say it, the thing that comes about in David's soul is joyful praise, and we'll we'll come to that at the conclusion. Our structure, our outline for for this morning's message is this: it centers around the the repeated phrase "my soul." You see this in verse one. You see it in verse five, 
and you see it in verse 8, this is going to function as our structure and our outline this morning. Verse 1, my soul thirsts for you. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. And then verse 8, my soul clings to you. So my soul thirsts, my soul will be satisfied, my soul clings. And if you want a big idea for this entire sermon, it's this. In times of trouble and uncertainty, a soul who seeks after and is satisfied in God will still joyfully praise him. And again, as I said, during this time away from each other, um, as our lives have been put on hold and we feel like we're, we're in the wilderness, my hope and pray, prayer is that uh, our joy in praising Christ, the center of unbroken praise, wouldn't, um, he would, our praise for Jesus would remain unbroken and that our joy in him wouldn't decrease, but that, that it would increase. So let's get started here in verse 1. Let's get started in verse 1. So a full soul that is thirsty. My soul thirsts. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. David starts off with this very personal uh, declaration to God. Oh God, you are my God. Uh, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, uh, there is this promise uh, that, that sweeps the, the, the whole of Scripture. It's God saying to those of his who will um, come to him uh, and be saved by grace through faith, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you find this in Exodus, or you find this throughout the Old Testament. You can find this promise in the book of Revelation. So God is not just an idea. He's just not a thought. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's real. He can be known. He can be sought after. And so David says to him, Oh God, you are my God. The very next phrase, Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. So this isn't some half-hearted seeking. It's a desperate perseverance, a desperate pursuit of a man who is looking for that which is going to sustain his life. And the imagery that God, David goes on to use as we continue to read, he says, well, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've already given you the context for this. So David pictures himself thirsting for uh, the presence of God as if he were in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, it's probably difficult for you and I to really appreciate the, the, the scope and the depth of this imagery. Because um, you and I have so much access to water, uh, we <laughs> there's we have all kinds of water we have access to: uh, flavored water, orange water, grape water, strawberry kiwi water, water with electrolytes. Um, so we really don't know what it's like to really be desperate for um, and seeking for the life-sustaining gift that water is is to those who really are thirsty. And we really, if we're in the woods. Um, we're really never that far from sheets. But here David finds himself saying, My soul thirsts for you, God. My flesh faints for you as a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And David does not just play lip service to seeking. He actually does it. So check out verse 3. Check out verse 3. Because you're... I'm sorry. Verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 2. I'm getting ahead of myself. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So here's what David, he's in the wilderness. 
He says, God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I'm in this dry and weary land where there is no water. But that which is going to sustain my soul, the life-giving water, is your presence. Is your presence. And so what David does, look at what he does in verse 2. He takes his eyes, his gaze off of his circumstances. And he beholds God in his sanctuary. Beholding his power and his glory. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. This is why it's so important for you and I to be reading, devouring, and engaging with the scriptures because it's there we read in Isaiah of our great God who's being praised by the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We read in the gospels of, about Jesus where his disciples see him and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves Obey him. So take your eyes off our circumstances and behold God's power and glory as revealed to us in Scripture. Now check out what David says next. Check out what David says next. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Let me read that phrase one more time. Because your steadfast love is better than life. I hope that what happened just now is you read that phrase, that text that it just draws you in a little closer like wait wait did he really just say that because life is precious and the bible treats it that way um and uh life is is good and the bible treats it that way um but here david says he's found something that's better than life itself now is there anything in your life right now that you could say is better than your actual physical life and mean it. But yet, here we have David saying he's found something that's better than life. It's God's steadfast love. Now, there are things we treat or pursue. I think it's if we are honest with ourselves, there are things that we treat and pursue where we would um, use the phrase, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, uh, that we desire them. It could be our jobs, um, it could be prosperity, uh, it could be sports, um, and Lord help us, the praise of man, this need for, for us to be worshipped by, by, our, by our fellow man. Um, it could be any of those things. Um, but just remember where David's, David is. David's life in the center of the physical kingdom had been placed on hold while he was looking to be quenched by the presence of God. His life had been removed from the comforts of where he normally was. And he found himself in a place where he was looking for his thirst, his soul to be quenched by the life-giving water that only God gives. So when we read that and we think about it, what we can say is, what a tender mercy the wilderness is. What a tender mercy God is showing to us when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Because what it tends to do is, not what it tends to do, what it does do, what it has done over the past month, uh, at least in my life and hopefully in yours, it has um, helped you identify idols in your life, things that are in your own heart, and um, has caused you to have to strip away 
uh, things that really ultimately are fruitless in your life, that tend to distract you from, keep you from um, pursuing God in this way, earnestly, the way David is describing it. Christopher Ash helped, helped me see, see this. Um, uh, he, he points out that um, David's life in, in, in thinking about this psalm and David being in the wilderness, that King David's life foreshadowed the greater king that was going to come, uh, that being Jesus. And Jesus Christ left his heavenly home, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and came to this worldly wilderness um, in order to uh, draw us near to God the Father so that we could say, my soul thirsts for God, and actually pursue and know him through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ literally knew uh, what it meant to thirst and hunger in the desert uh, as he was being tempted by Satan. And it's through our knowing Christ and our union with Christ uh, that we can experience even a deeper, deeper hunger for God on a deeper thirst for God. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 17 years now. And looking back on on our marriage, prior to us being married, it absolutely amazes me um, how earnestly that my wife pursued me. <laughs> so um, we all know that's not a, exactly how it happened, but it, it's if you've been married for any amount of time, it's always fun to watch a couple get together and see the earnestness with which uh, they seek uh, one another uh, uh, romantically. And I had recently read this book um, by Jared Wilson. He was with us in November. Um, I read it with with another guy in our church, and uh, he quotes a pastor or an old an old preacher by the name of George Whitfield who was giving advice to young women who desired to get married. And what George Whitfield explained to them is that they need to find a man, a guy, who desired and pursued Christ. Now, he doesn't say this way, but the way he described it was much in the same way that David is describing this pursuit, my soul thirsts for you, that they have a desire to know Christ um, because all because of all that Christ really is uh, for a person in their life. And he goes on to give them this advice, and this is what he says. This is what he says to the, to the young ladies. And I think it's good advice for us also. Consider who the Lord Jesus is, whom you are considered to espouse or marry yourself to. He is the best husband there is none comparable to Jesus Christ. Do you desire one that is great? He is of the highest dignity. He is glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, admired by angels, dreaded by devils, and adored by saints. Do you desire one that is rich? None is comparable to Christ. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. If you be married to Christ, you shall share in his unsearchable riches. Do you desire one that is strong, who may defend you against your enemies and all the insults and reproaches of the Pharisees of this generation? There is none that can equal Christ in power, for the Lord Jesus Christ hath all power. Do you desire one that is good? Do you desire one that is beautiful? Do you desire one that can love you? And Wilson goes on to write this, Oh, everything we look for everywhere else... But God can only be found in God. Every greatness, every wealth, 
every wisdom, every power, every goodness, every beauty, and every love we are longing for can only be found in him. And in him, we find the apex of all these virtues and more. And so that leads us into what we see in verse 5. So we go from a soul that thirsts to a soul that is satisfied. And look what verse 5 says. Look at what verse 5 says. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So verse 1, we start, my again, my soul thirsts. And then we have in verse 5 a soul that is now satisfied um, as with fat and rich food. And it, it's interesting because um, if you look at verse 1 and in verse 5, they both use um, images of something that we need daily uh, to sustain life. The first being water, uh, and then the next being uh, food. And what David finds in God and what we find in Christ is a soul that will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I love that description in verse 5, that the soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, we're not talking about uh, chicken fingers and fries that you get at the drive-thru. My wife and I went to the Capitol Grill uh, a couple years ago down in Pittsburgh uh, for our anniversary and I had the best piece of steak I've ever had in my life and it was so good and so satisfying to my palate and I'm not making this up you can ask my wife is that when I got down to the last bite I didn't want to take it because I know how satisfying it was going to be to me and so I just stared at it for like 20 minutes and then finally because we had to go uh, I savored and tasted that last bite, and my gosh, I can still, even now as I'm telling you this, can remember how good it was taste and how well it tasted to my soul, to my palate. <laughs> and here we have David saying what he's found. He has a soul that is satisfied as with fat and rich food. And the question we have to ask ourselves, and the question you need to ask yourself is, do you believe that God can satisfy your soul? Do you believe that all that Christ is, the one we just read about or quoted uh, George Whitfield about, can satisfy your deepest longings that you have in your life? And the answer that David gives is yes. I mean, notice his confidence. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. In John chapter 6, uh, one of the most famous stories in, of Jesus in all the Bible, uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. And the story goes like this, that uh, a great crowd was following him, and I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. A great crowd was following him, and um, Jesus wanted to feed, feed the people. And one of his disciples comes up to him and says, well, we only have uh, five barley loaves and two fish. And, and basically like, are you serious, Jesus? Are we going to feed, the, feed these people with just this? It's going to take a lot of money to feed all these people. And this is all we have. And this is what happens. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. So we gave him the bread and the fish. And here, as much as they wanted. And you catch that? Jesus fed them 
as much as they wanted. He did not leave them hungry or famished, and he filled them up. And he goes on later in the chapter to say this, later in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In other words, they will have a soul that is satisfied as with fat and rich food. Throughout scripture, there is this call that God sends out to people, an invitation he sends out to them, that if they thirst and if they hunger, the invitation is simple. It's come to me. It's come to me. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 4. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Free stuff. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not, does not satisfy? You can have your soul satisfied with something without cost. And it's the free gift to come to the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. And so those of you, again, I've said a few things during this service to, to non-Christians. Um, come to Christ. Why not today? Why not now? Even in the midst, as you find yourself sitting at your home around your computer, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. It is the free gift of the gospel extended to you. Uh, Jesus Christ has made a way for you to come to the Father. And for you Christians, um, have a soul that is satisfied as with, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Look at verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So even today, even tonight, uh, we can take this literally. Uh, remember Jesus Christ and meditate on what he did for you and all that he's done for you in the gospel, and all the benefits that you have uh, from him. And let that satisfy your soul as with fat and rich food. So we have a soul that thirsts, a soul that's satisfied, and now we move to verse 8. My soul clings to you. We move from a soul that was thirsty to a soul that was satisfied. And because of what the psalmist had found in Christ, in God, uh, his soul now clings to God because God's right hand upholds him. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right up hand upholds me. David is embracing and holding tightly to God. He has sought him, has been satisfied into him, and now he is clinging to him uh, because, look at the second phrase in verse 8, he's clinging to him tightly because it's his right hand that upholds him. God's right hand is his symbol of authority. It's a symbol of power um, that is used to reach out and sustain his pe people. And why would David say this is because David is in no small pickle here. Look at verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life 
all throughout the Psalms, David talks about his enemies, and, and here he makes it very clear uh, that these people weren't coming up to him trying to you know, ask him how he's doing. King Saul, who was pursuing him, uh, was trying to kill him. Absalom, his own son, was seeking to destroy him, to do away with him. And so he says these words in a very real, real way. But those who seek to destroy my life. So again, he's in a very difficult situation uh, in the wilderness. And his soul is clinging to the one who will act on his behalf. The stronger, more powerful one. When when I'm hiking with my kids in the I was going to say in the desert, not in the desert. When I'm hiking with my kids um, out in the woods somewhere and we're on a trail and there's any sign of trouble, uh, whether it be a mean dog or really high winds or a storm coming, uh, I feel two little bodies uh, get a little closer to me and hold a little more tightly onto my my pant legs. Um, So they're they're, uh, clinging to the one who will very willingly act on their behalf. And and here uh, David is clinging to God. His soul is clinging to God in the wilderness because there are enemies seeking to destroy his life. But notice what happens to David's enemies. Second part of verse 9. They shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. The result of the right hand of God upholding David is that ultimately, and David had confidence, his soul had confidence, that this was going to be the end of his enemies. They're going to go down into the depths of the earth, so Sheol. They will be given over to the power of the sword, so they will die on the battlefield. They will be killed. And these people who thought they were powerful, who arrogantly pursued me, who came after me, these enemies who tried to destroy my life, their end is they will be portioned for jackals. One commentator says it like this. Jackals make sense here uh, rather than foxes. Maybe that was an old translation. Jackals make sense here because they are the final scavengers consuming the remains of the kill rejected by the larger beasts. So in other words, their carcasses aren't, (laughs) this is such a vivid imagery, their carcasses aren't even worthy to be eaten by the more uh, prominent, larger beasts, they're going to be left over for the jackals. And the way to think about that in Western PA is those mangy mutts, mangy scavengers that are, we call, that are coyotes, that are coyotes. So David's enemies will be destroyed. David's enemies will have their mouths stopped. Look at the end of verse 11. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. They will be shut. So in other words, um, in other words, the victory that David is going to be experienced through God, the one his soul clings to, is going to be so decisive that there will be no doubt to who the sovereign, powerful one is. David's reality in the wilderness was this. It was simple. His enemies were going to kill him or God was going to save him. And David was confident that God was going to save him. In Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 through the end of Mark chapter 5, uh, Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over all things that sort of interrupt our, that can interrupt our lives or cause us great, the greatest of pains. So just, again, Cliff Notes version. In Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, Jesus on a boat with his disciples as a great windstorm arises, 
that causes his disciples to think that they are perishing. And Jesus gets up and says, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey him. Next, Jesus confronts a man who has been possessed by a demon. He's lived among the tombs and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Jesus casts out the demon to a herd of pigs. The demons listen. Here was this strong man who couldn't even be bound with chains. And now here comes Jesus and the demons listen to him. Next, we have a woman that has suffered from a discharge of blood for many, many years, spent all her money on physicians, had no help. Uh, The physicians couldn't help her. She's actually probably now in a spot that's worse off than when she first began. And here comes Jesus. She touches the hem of his robe and she's healed. So weather listens to him. Demons listen to him. Um, Diseases listen to him. And ultimately, next, death. There's a little girl who dies. But Jesus shows up on the scene, takes her by the hand, and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she does. Last week, you and I celebrated Christ's ultimate victory over our greatest enemy, death. And it's in... um, Our greatest enemy's sin and death. It was through him going to the cross, his humiliation on the cross, and then his exaltation on the day of resurrection, that he defeated death, he defeated sin, and his victory was so decisive that there is no doubt that he is the one who our souls can cling to, and it's his hand that's going to uphold us because he has defeated our greatest enemies. But in a time like today, um, there's always that question, I think, that arises when we talk about ultimate victory of God, or the victory of God. It's like, why isn't he doing something right now? Um, and I'm not even going to pretend to try and answer that. But, but I mean, when we, we ask those questions, what is God doing right now through a global pandemic? Well, one thing, he's doing what he's always done. He's drawing people to himself, and he's building and strengthening his church. Uh, if we're to ask for the finer details of what he's doing in this exact moment, you know, I, <laughs> I don't even want to pretend to try and answer that because even if he were to tell us, um, in my finiteness, I don't want to pretend that I would understand or would be, uh, yeah, p- pretend that I, I would completely understand in my own human finiteness. But when we look at this psalm and David says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, he has a soul that's confident that ultimate victory belongs to God. Uh, And Jesus demonstrated that to us in his victory over sin and death on the cross. So where does this all lead? Where does this all lead? A soul that thirsts after God, a soul that thirsts after Christ, that finds its satisfaction in Christ, um, that's clinging to God and is confident in the victory that he will bring over our enemies. Um, Where does that lead us to? Back to where we started. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. That's the result. In every stanza that you see, my soul flesh, my my soul thirsts for you. My soul will be satisfied. My soul clings to you. The result of David having looked upon God in his sanctuary, remembering him on his bed day and night, is that he praises him with joyful lips. And he sings his praises. Look at verse 3. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. My brothers and sisters, in times of trouble and uncertainty, a soul who seeks after and is satisfied in God can still joyfully praise him. Charles Spurgeon, all the straits and difficulties of the wilderness must not put us out of tune with sacred song. But even then, it is our duty and interest to keep up a cheerful communion with God. Jesus is the center of unbroken praise. And so as you and I find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, some of us are suffering in big ways, some of us in small ways. My prayer is, my prayer and hope is, again, as I said in the beginning, that as when we gather back together, it would be obvious that God did a great work in your heart and in mine as we have souls that thirst for God, as we find that our souls can be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and that that our souls would cling to the one whose hand upholds us because ultimate victory comes from him. The soul that believes in Christ will be the one who sings Christ's praises through all eternity with joy. My friends, the one who rejects Christ, their mouths will be stopped. And my prayer is that today our hearts cry out, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And may Christ be the center of unbroken praise. Amen and amen.